You're going to remember this every day for the rest of your life. If you want to get to a goal, if you want to get to your dream, you got to focus on all the little steps. You have to put in your time. You have to be patient and you have to enjoy the process. Whatever you're doing now, whatever you want to be great at, whatever you want to be special at, I'm sure you you maybe already be good at it, but to be extraordinary, you have to do extra. I firmly believe that we are all here for a very specific reason to do something truly extraordinary. But what are you going to do to get there? Welcome to another episode of the Magna Method Podcast. Today's guest is Brad Scott. Brad has spent almost 20 years in the world of college sports before accepting his current position as head sports performance coach for the Atlanta Braves. Brad and Mark discuss many topics dealing with the sports performance industry. Whether it's business, applied science, communication, or human interaction, you're sure to hear something new, or at least refreshing. This episode of The Magna Method is being brought to you by No Foods. Be sure to visit nofoods.com, that's K-N-O-W foods.com, and check out all of their amazing products. And don't forget to use the code MAGNA10, that's M-E-G-N-A-1-0, to get 10% off of your purchase. I'd like to welcome Brad Scott, head sports performance coach for the Atlanta Braves baseball team. Welcome to the show, Brad. Great. Thanks for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's a it's a treat to have you on. Uh, I know I Brad came by, um, was it last week? Last week? Yeah. Um, and stopped in. A friend, uh, Samuel Polk, connected us, and um, I was so happy he stopped in. And as a matter of fact, we talked for about an hour, right? Yeah. An hour just talking... I guess training systems, programming, business, people, team, leadership, and I—I I, I started to kick myself, saying, "Man, this would have been a great podcast." <laughs> <clears throat> so that being said, he's on the show, and we're going to talk about some of those things. But first, I'd like to uh, dip into how you got started, and you can start off with college and, and your transition into the field, and give us your background. Yeah, um, I grew up in Boston. Um, the youngest of uh, five kids. And so I was just always trying to uh, keep up with my older brothers, so to speak. And it went to Severian Brothers High School and I had a strength coach um, in high school who really kind of started to develop us. We had a powerlifting team. And so it was kind of a matter of, you know, being an athlete and a wrestler and kind of trying to improve your sport. And then also being introduced to the sport of powerlifting young um, it really started to kind of, I started working in a gym and the next thing you know, I was just really like into training. And when I went to school, I didn't know if I wanted to do exercise phys or, um, criminal justice. And I ended up kind of dual majoring in both. And, um, from there I had to do my internship and I really had no idea about what a strength coach was. I just, I thought I was going to go into the personal training realm. And, um, I ended up getting an internship at Northeastern university. And at the time, um, the gentleman who was running the department, his assistant had left. And I think he had like 20 sports, including football at the time. And he essentially put a lot of responsibility on me to start working with these guys. So I would essentially go to class from 7 in the morning, you know, 7 to 10 or 11, and then be over there working from 1 to 8. And I really fell in love with the college environment. And that's where my path kind of took me. Um, when he went to hire a new assistant, uh, he pulled somebody from the University of Arizona uh, who was a grad assistant. And next thing I know, the guy comes in and he said, hey, I hear you're pretty good. They're looking to replace me at University of Arizona in a grad assistant position. Is that something that you're interested in? And I had no idea what a grad assistant was. <laughs> and he was like, hey, you got two days to kind of tell me if this is something that you want. I remember going home and talking to my parents. And next thing you know, I'm moving across the country two months later. Um, once I had graduated and you're kind of loading up your car and you just kind of put your faith in where you're going to go. And from there, I, um, I spent, uh, 15 years in college sports, uh, running a bunch of different departments. I went from university of Arizona, went to Cal state Northridge and was a director there. Um, and then it was pretty interesting too, because a lot of these schools that I was working at, it was just myself, like Cal state Northridge. I had 
15 teams and it was just me. So every hour on the hour, I had to train a team. Wow. And so the amount of exposure that you get uh, was just really, it was really cool because you, it allowed me to grow so much as a coach and in and, and a lot of different ways of how to run a department, how to speak with administrators uh, and superiors and how to like break things down to the, the different cultures of the sports. Mm-hmm. You know, you might have a women's tennis team walk in and then a men's basketball team follow up right after that. Very diverse, um, huh? Yeah, and I think that kind of allowed you to start to ebb and flow mm-hmm. and start to learn how do you be somewhat of a chameleon as a coach and hold a standard across the board, but then also be adaptive to the culture of the sport and what their needs are and what the framework of that athlete is and kind of where they're coming from, where that head coach is coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, so from there, I went to I was at Northridge for a year and a half. I went to... Uh, uh, USC for a year and a half and worked with the court sports um, and did men's and women's basketball and volleyball there. And then um, I got an opportunity to go up to University of Portland, a um, little small school uh, right in downtown Portland. Portland must, and, be, must be, I'm sorry to interrupt, must be <clears throat> an incredible area. I was just out there for an event in, uh, you know, in, in talks uh, with you when you were in, at Anatomy. It's beautiful there. Tell me about Portland. Yeah. I fell, I fell in love with Portland. I fell in love with the school and I fell in love with the area. I mean, I grew up skateboarding and snowboarding and uh, anytime I could be on a mountain or on the coast surfing was kind of what allows me to kind of recharge as a coach. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like it puts you in a position where you have to be where your feet are. Right. And so between the beauty of the actual climate and being able to, you know, coach for 10 hours and then there's a beautiful skateboard park you know, 10 minutes away mm-hmm. to kind of go recharge and free your mind. Um, I absolutely fell in love with it. And I was there for 10 years and it was really neat because it gave me an opportunity. You know, I walked in and I remember people saying, why are you leaving SC for this? <laughs> and you know, the weight room was terrible. It was, it looked like a Noah's Ark kind of two of everything that somebody had donated. It was worse than high schools that I had seen. Um, but I had, there was a belief and the um, the AD, this guy Larry Williams, he had played in the NFL for nine to ten years, I believe. He he understood strength and conditioning, and this was about 2007, I think, around there. Mm-hmm. And I knew between the president of the university had support for athletics, the athletic director had support for strength and conditioning, and the basketball coach who was helping to hire me at the time realized that I spent more time with the student athletes than anyone else on his staff. Okay. And so he recognized the importance of it. And from there, you know, we were able to do two weight room remodels, so to speak. And I really think it, it allowed me to build a program as opposed to run a department. And I think there's two different ways that you, that you can look at that. Um, from growing an internship program, from growing a continuing education program, uh, where you're becoming very resourceful and hosting seminars um, to actually providing the best services for the student athletes and for the coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really kind of was able to flourish. And quite honestly, it was really difficult decision um, to leave there because, you know, it had been there for 10 years and you're kind of slaving away. Um, but during that time, they actually supported me and I was able to go back to massage school nights. So I did that for two years. Wow. Because I, I was just trying to like, I was getting into FMS at the time and I was trying to, I was like, there, there's got to be something more to this. Like, right. I got to be able to put these guys back together. And so um, a gentleman that had hired me at the Braves approached me and I always said the next job I was going to take, I was going to work with somebody, not for somebody. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go work for someone that had shared values and a shared vision and that we could go and build something right. and um, allow me to be vulnerable. And my vulnerability would be seen as a strength of what I did not know because together we would find out answers of where we wanted to go right. and we would help complement each other. And uh, that's just what it was. Quite honestly, I came over to the Braves uh, in 16 and I was the massage therapist. We called it a performance therapy position and where we were trying to, essentially bridge this this gap that always happens as athletes kind of get into this rehab purgatory i'm i'm cleared to play but 
I may need some special attention to keep me going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it allowed me to kind of really dive into my soft tissue skills and kind of strengthen a weakness that I had. It wasn't my, my best skill, so to speak, because I was just pulled in so many different directions, uh, at the university of Portland. Right. And then, um, I did that for a year and, and then we were able to make some changes and, um, I've, finishing up my second year as the head strength coach well, head performance coach what a wild ride man congratulations on your pathway first off that's thanks a, that's a serious uh you know you spent 10 years at portland yeah i was there for uh, nine basketball seasons it's kind of the best best way so just under 10 years I'd like to talk about the difference in working with a I'd say I, I hate saying a contact sport as opposed to a non-contact sport and I would reference football and basketball but if anyone pays attention to a basketball game it's brutal out there so I wouldn't say that because I have a great deal of respect for basketball players having attended the University of Richmond and those guys man it's from taking a charge running through a pick whatever it may be it's rough but um what are the differences uh the stark differences between training football athletes and uh, court athletes? I would say football, the, the culture is completely different. Um, when you look at training, um, just in general, it's built into the culture of football from a very early age. Um, and they realize that, you know, I have to be bigger. I have to be stronger. I have to kind of create a, a coat of armor and hypertrophy in order to be in order to survive. Um, and part of that also helps with the mental development and the confidence that you have when you're working with the court sports. Um, you know, it's very easy to see how like a, a player, like a Kobe Bryant can, or LeBron James can just physically take over a game and score 50 points and put them in a position to succeed. Mm -hmm. So you don't see there's the, the difference in the team aspect of it. Um, and now you're starting to see it's slowly starting performance training in general as being more well accepted, regardless of sport. Mm -hmm. So you, as the athletes are coming up, you know, as you're starting to get them at a college level, they have a good system of training for the most part. However, what you're seeing, I think in just in general, whether it's, uh, another thing with basketball is basketball, you play year round, you just grab a ball, you go hoop and that's pretty much all you do. Right. So sometimes you're seeing an athlete a basketball player who is highly skilled, but has poor general athleticism. They have specific athleticism to the skill itself and being able to practice. But if you took them and tried to teach them how to do a squat or had them do some skipping, um, some, any type of acceleration work, um, balance work, those types of things, you're just going to see almost the, the, there's a rawness to the basketball athlete, whereas the football athlete, they generally have to play other sports because there's only football. There's, there's no summer league for football. There's okay. no spring football that you would see. So from just a general training perspective, um, I think that a football player tends to be a little bit more athletic in certain ways mm -hmm. because they're kind of forced to play three sports. You know, right. generally your football guy is going to play a basketball in the winter and do some type of track and field, um, in the, in the spring and basketball players tend to, to play year round. So you have to kind of adjust your training and say like, okay, well, where are we? Um, what are they doing from a, what's their off? What is their load? the other 23 hours that they're not in the weight room. Mm -hmm. How much are they playing? What are they doing for plyometrics? How are we starting to fill in some of those gaps? Um, so all those things kind of take, take place. Okay. You know, I heard, uh, I used to think my perception and I know things evolve and things change drastically over the years to decade to decade. I used to hear <clears throat> a football player needs to be really big and really strong. Now, if you were to ask a coach, I would guess and lead into well, I prefer mobility and speed. Would you agree with that? I think um, mobility and speed, it has to come into versus, you know, big and strong. I think you have to define those terms. You know, what does that coach see as big and strong? 
you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you, th- you think we in, all, in regards, I'm sorry to interrupt, in regards to conferences of yeah. football, right? We know the drastic differences between conferences. Like people who pay attention who know the ebbs and flows of college football, they'd say maybe the Big Ten guys are just big guys. And they're certainly phenomenal athletes. They're certainly fast. But they put a precursor or put a um, – a, sig- a significant high grade or high mark on certain attributes as opposed to others. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree. I think, you know, it just, de- it depends so much because if you look at, I think, you know, Chip Kelly and being in Oregon and what he was able to do. And then you just look at Jim Radcliffe, who's an amazing strength coach and, and his foundation of being athletic mm-hmm. first and foremost is he kind of really changed the game. Right. You know, um, and they were very, very successful when Chip Kelly was at Oregon. And so you, you are starting to see this premium of how do I have some speed, mobility, being able to move, and I'll probably actually be healthier in the long run over the course of the season. It'd be interesting to say, like, what are the different injury rates that are non-contact relative to two teams designed completely differently? Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a team that's built upon speed and agility – um, and maybe not as big, how would that look versus, you know, kind of the, the bigger, faster, stronger approach? Right. Um, and how would that actually relate, you know, one to wins and losses? Cause that's also what it's about too. You right. Know? Especially in, in college. You know, so I was leading into Brad that that has evolved over the years that def- those definitions, because each definition, as you said, there was a brilliant answer. You have to actually clearly define what those things mean to those coaches and to the people who are working with those athletes. But that being said, now it's stated as football players should look like basketball players that lift weights in the off season, not weightlifters who play just a little bit of basketball in the off season. And I thought that was, uh, have you ever heard that before? No, I haven't, quite honestly. Yeah, I thought this was very interesting. I, I had never heard it phrased like that because at the time, first, I'm not a tall person. I like to say I'm 6'2", I'm probably 6'1 and a half. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't look like a basketball player. If anything, I looked like a weight lifter or a person that did a lot of weight room work. And as I got into my career, that changed a bit because there's just so much movement and you have to cover so much ground quickly, uh, strength uh, obviously, force production translating to speed it is is everything. But it just took me. It really. Uh, it took me a while. It took me a while to understand how important it is to move well and try to get that um, through tr- via training and you know trying to maximize training systems and programming to make myself as athletic. I don't know if you can make yourself athletic, but have better better quality of movement, so to speak. Yeah, I would agree. I think your foundation upon, I would say human specific before sports specific. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of your training and how do I start And movement is a big foundation of that. Um, and then within your program design, are you paying attention to all the different systems that come together to make up that athlete? So we know that the aerobic system is a pretty big foundation of health. You know, how, how's the quality of that? How is the quality of uh, kind of parts versus patterns? Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at what Kelly Storett has been able to do and kind of focus more on a, a joint by joint approach, so to speak, in terms of mobilize, it's become pretty hard, hot topic in our industry. And then you look at Gray Cook and what he did with the FMS and more of a pattern or DNS and a pattern approach and the patterns effect on the joint itself and kind of that going back and forth um, and looking at kind of this developmental kinesiology model and then how do we transfer that into movement when you're looking at kind of a Gary Gray and understanding the matrices and the different planes of which movement needs to occur and then we have to take into account the vectors of which we're applying force to express that movement so is it more of a uh, linear based work or is it more of a vertical or horizontal um so movement we have to it has a lot of different layers mm-hmm. and then as we start to train those layers and being able to express power we have to look at the sport and then start to figure out within our general you know gpp movement and then how does that actually get into more of our specific movement 
And part of it too is I feel like more athletes now just lack the general because as we kind of alluded to earlier. Um, and so part of, of whether it's in season training or working with a college athlete that you have for four years, you know, that GPP phase is, is really big and almost can be extended a little bit uh, to help plug in the gaps that they didn't have being a three sport athlete. Um, so okay. I, I don't know if that helps you out, no, but that's, no, that's, something that's, perfect. that's perfect. something to think of with uh, movement training itself. And let's talk a little bit about your system. You, you get, um, basically you're in college, you get freshmen or, you know, you could even, uh, translate this over to, to major league baseball. Now you're working with a younger athlete who hasn't done a lot of training. How do you, uh, try to, I know we want to just completely immerse them in the system and get them ready to go. Cause at the end of the day, the most important thing that they can have, uh, is performance that great performance and great performance translates to a better percentage or a better opportunity or chance to win baseball games. How do you get them uh, in service or, or involved in the culture and bring them up to speed when they have uh, a very narrow base of condition, strength and conditioning? Uh, they're coming from a place with not a lot of training. Yeah, I think within the college uh, realm, one of the things that we looked at is each year was what was the makeup of the team? You know, did you have more freshmen and sophomores? Did you have a couple of seniors who were good trainers in itself? And we actually would start um, building a culture about expectations. And I would actually give them a presentation and kind of ask them like, you know, the upperclassmen, how do we develop an ownership of the program and therefore an ownership of how we are going to operate as kind of a unit? And so you'd meet in the classroom, you kind of go over the, like, Hey, this is like the general model of why we're doing what we're doing mm. so that there's an educational piece to that. Right. Um, I, your goal is to teach them, not to tell them, right. You want them to learn why you're doing what, why they're, you know, why do we have to wear this heart rate monitor? Why are we, we doing this exercise? Why does she get to do, or he get to do this particular exercise? And so, um, when you're starting with the small, with a, with a younger athlete coming in with a relatively no training age, we had to start with the culture and then we had to start with making it a positive place and then educating them and saying like, everything is measured in a weight room. Everything is measured on a basketball court. Every stat is measured in baseball. So how do we make the, the weight room itself a positive place where it's okay to fail as long as you're failing safe and failing forward? Interesting. And you're, you're kind of looking at, so I don't mean like when I say fail, we're not maxing out. It's just saying like, you may not be very good at something right away and you're going to get frustrated, but here's how we're kind of putting you in these challenging positions or places um, to kind of slowly bring them up to speed. So part of it has to come with just building a human relationship with the team or that athlete addressing and kind of like every exercise is a test and every session you're constantly monitoring and adapting um, where that athlete needs to be mm -hmm. or where that team needs to be within the global vision of what your yearly plan is, you know, and, and within college, for example, we would have our, we had an onboarding with our freshmen. And so freshmen had their own program. And one of the things that we did, if, if, it allowed some summers we, we would train all the athletes who are incoming freshmen, regardless of gender or team. And this was how we established. And we had, I'm sorry, know, you train, you train them all together. We would train them all together because oh, wow. they had to know, Hey, this is how you set up a squat rack. This is how you spot each other. This is how you use a heart rate monitor. This is how we do our sleep questionnaire and our wellness questionnaire. This is how, like in it, because you're not trying to, speed them up to fit in with somebody who's taking a, a four on a 400 level class. You, you got the people, there's a reason when you look at education, right? Like if I go to school, I'm taking 100 level classes if I'm a freshman. Mm -hmm. So how did we bring it back to a level 100 for our incoming freshmen? And this is like how you navigate campus. Well, this is how you navigate the weight room. These are the things that we're going to, we're going to walk you over to, the food uh, cafeteria. And this is how we're going to, this is how we got to look at nutrition for health and start to plant these seeds that are going to flourish over their four year career. 
you know, when you're working in professional sports, it's, you know, you're slowly starting to, we've got some young guys on the team and it's these little conversations that you have in between innings. It's the, you know, making sure you grab a bite to eat with the guy if you're sitting, sitting down um, and starting to build that relationship with them. It's the little, you know, we play every day. So how do I get a tent come in for 15 minutes and we slowly start to educate them. Hey, this is what we're doing. This is a program. This is, you know, and, and break that down accordingly. Understood. You know, it, <clears throat> it, it, it sounds almost, you know, incredibly elementary. Obviously all coaches would appreciate that, but you know, I think back to John Wooden, the first lesson John Wooden would teach his all American, the guys that were coming out of high school that were high school, all Americans going to UCLA to play for John Wooden. The first lesson he taught them, are you aware of the first lesson he taught them? How to tie their shoes. Correct. How to tie their shoes. And you could only imagine. I'm not so sure. I want to, Half of me says they were probably like, come on, Coach Wood is going to do that thing with the shoes. The other, I, I'm, <laughs> yeah. but, but I don't think I'm saying anything if it's John Wooden. If John Wooden is teaching me a lesson, I don't care what it is. I'm going to listen. You know? So, yeah. please. I agree 100%. I think you look at all of these major coaches – and just the foundation of what you're doing, it's, it's character development. When you're in college, 99% of those kids are never going to go on and mm-hmm. play professional sports. They're going to go out into the working world. And if they do go on to professional sport, if they are the top 1% that actually managed to get there, how do you give them the habits and the tools to manage themselves as professionals and empower them to do so? Mm-hmm. And there's a greater context, right? The reason why he taught them how to tie their shoes was so that they didn't get blisters on their feet. Right. And if they got blisters on their feet, they wouldn't be able to express their skills. If they couldn't express their skills, they'd be missing practice time and all the detrimental effects to the team, to the culture, to the mindset of that athlete, all from one simple lesson. Right. You know, so there's always a greater context and a greater kind of, uh, thing that relates to the those lessons and so how do you kind of maneuver those as a coach and, and it's interesting because yeah, as you said there's always a, a a bigger picture item that's the reason we're doing the smaller detailed item so you know before that it's developing trust and if my team or staff or the people that are, are under you athletes or working under you if they you don't develop that trust they're going to be questioning everything you do so how do you build that trust yeah, I think that's the biggest thing, right? And and you have to um, trust is such a, a impactful. It basically allows you to do your job um, and have that. So you have to one be respectful to those athletes and meet them where they are, where they're at, um, and have realistic expectations. Um, and you know, it's kind of that saying: people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. One of my and, favorites. And that's, yeah. Right. And so for me, you know, some of the best um, opportunities for me as a coach in the college level was like going and grabbing a cup of coffee with a kid or grabbing lunch with them as they were trying to figure things out. You know, Um, college is a unique place where they're trying to figure out who they are as people. And now they're labeled as an athlete on campus. And so how do they kind of figure out and develop who they are um, off the court and on the court or on the playing field? Mm hmm. And so how would you go about building that trust? And sometimes too, it's a matter of just like, how do you open, put yourself in situations as a coach uh, to open up opportunities to build a relationship. So in the summer, for example, in Oregon, as we alluded to, it's a beautiful place. And we would have two summer sessions. And the second summer session was six weeks long. And we would take all the athletes uh, that had trained with us in the summer sessions hiking like there's some beautiful hikes and you go on a two hour hike and I'd make it a purpose to start walking with each individual guy and check in. Hey, how did the summer go? What are you looking forward to the most when you go home? How do you talk to them about anything regarding sports other than sports? I should say, mm-hmm. you know, about their family, what other interests do they like? What's their major even here? Where are they from? You know, what do you look forward to when you get to the park? What's the first thing? What's your routine? Like, how do you get to know who they are? And then you can slowly start to, um, coach them right you know because and all, build that trust and buy in i'm guessing coach that all that information is just uh all those questions lead to great information that helps you figure out the way that individual ticks so you can coach do a better job of coaching them and connecting with them correct yeah 100 percent. 
you know it's interesting for example when you're coaching in uh college like you know you're going to get your freshmen you know you're going to get their their testing you're kind of having a, a good kind of athletic profile on that athlete because you can kind of build it from day one you know you report this is what we got this is our testing here's where we're going we're in the middle of getting trades so wow. right now on the professional level so i get a guy that comes in it's midway through the season we've played 130 games and the worst thing i could do is say hey this is the program i'm going to have you do like talk about a way to not build trust or any mm -hmm. type of relationship i have to approach that situation and say hey listen what have you done that's made you successful? What is your routine? How can I help facilitate that now going forward? What do you like to do? How do I help you? And whether I agree with it or not, I have to allow him. It's gotten him to this point where our organization wants to have him be a part of our team because that person can help contribute to wins. Right. And so I have to support that person and then build a relationship with them quickly and the best way to do that is just, hey, what's worked well for you? Right. That's. And now I'm not projecting my philosophy on them. I'm asking for them to project their information back onto me and support that. And then slowly but surely, they'll, you know, you kind of respect where they're at as a, as a professional. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting the way I uh, translate, to, translate that to my world. We get clients of all kinds. We, we do get athletes. We get everyday people. And... Sometimes uh, myself, along with some of the trainers, may get a bit frustrated that the client doesn't immediately buy into the program. And my response is always the same. How can they buy into the program when they're 40 years old and what they've been doing has been working for them and got them this far? Like, Yeah, you know, 100%. You, you got to understand that there's a reason that they, they're, they've survived and they, they have a good uh, profession. They do well financially. And now you're asking them to put some of that stuff on its head and just go blindly into trusting you. That doesn't happen. That's not realistic. You need to build that trust and then understand why it's so important for them to continue on the pattern that they've been on. But when you start to understand and break down that mindset, well, then you'll you'll have a better gateway into coaching them and then bringing them into your world. Yeah, 100 percent. You know, you can't project your experiences on somebody else and expect them to just, you know, embrace it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of what we had talked about. Um, you know, you've had the, the privilege to have played under some of the best head coaches um, to have ever coached football, you know, Belichick, mm -hmm. Pete Carroll. Um, and you look at, you can't exactly expect your staff to have the same values that were instilled upon you by some of the greatest, you know, character developers there are mm -hmm. um and so how do we kind of ebb and flow with that with its staff development and you know building rapport with our clients you know right no absolutely yeah it's you know that that was uh <clears throat> one of my uh i call them micro talks to to the team in our, in our meeting last week i can't expect them to do you know you say do the right thing define the right thing you know it's when, you, when I break down to it, I used to define that as what I would want you to do. But what I want you to do doesn't mean it's the right thing. I mean, I want you to be the best you you can be by making the right decisions on your own. However, if they don't have some sort of model on what that looks like, then don't expect um, it to even remotely look like something that you would have done. You have to give them an example. You have to walk them through the steps and clearly define what those answers look like. And then you can take it from me, be creative, define it on your own, and surprise me with the results. I'm always open to that. And matter of fact, that's exactly why I hire those people, because I trust them to do the right thing when I'm not around. And if I can trust them, I know that they'll always come on the positive side of making those decisions. Yeah, you know, it's um, we, had, we discussed this um, when we met, was, you know, staffing and kind of one of the things I learned just as I got older was like, how do I build the department as a business and so that everyone understood what the expectations were and what everybody had on their plate. You know, as you're running a department of business, you may have uh, business meetings that have to take place. How do you set up um, 
processes that, you know, if I have to step out, the place keeps running. You know, if I get caught late in a meeting, what's our process for, you know, obviously sometimes I'd get caught with a head coach discussing maybe what went on in practice and the athletes have to get started because they've got classes. But how do the athletes know what the expectations are? Or if I'm taking a vacation, does my staff understand what was on my plate so that they know what needs to get filled? And what's their daily objectives that they have to accomplish? And then how do we, I always said, you know, how we run our department influences what we can achieve in our team programming. Because if we're not dialed in as a staff, that's going to trickle down to our athletes. Right. In the same way that if the business isn't running successfully and we're not dialed in on what these people are paying for, then it's going to lead to subpar training efforts over the long haul and the business will not sustain itself. Absolutely. And so absolutely the, the, the going back and forth with staffing and trying to figure out, you know, you made a very good point, like writing a job description, you start writing it and you Google it and you're like starting to think. And then you also ask the, the, you know, in my case, I would ask my staff, like, what is your job description? What do you think I'm hiring you for? Mm-hmm. And kind of put it back on them a little bit is to have some reflection of, Oh, what am I actually responsible for? Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of helping to fill in those gaps that fill in what your expectations of them are as well. Right. It's always a good, right. good exercise. Absolutely. So now let's, uh, let's discuss some of your, me- you were talking about measuring when we, when we met, how do you break down workloads for your athletes? And, you know, some things that, there's so many factors, right? You talk about games, you talk about time off, how much played, how they're feeling, you talk to them. Just an athlete comes in, he's played a great deal. Um, are you just throwing the program in front of him? And everyone's going to, some people obviously know where this is going, but some people don't. And I just need some of our fan base to hear this and how you modify and treat every situation as a one-off. So how do you treat that situation, Coach? Yeah, so um, one of the things we're looking at, um, at like, for in baseball right now and where we are in the season um we're about 133 games in i believe something around there right um we just came off of a stretch of 22 games in 20 days um so you're an athlete comes in i've kind of looked at okay our schedule what you know do we have a night game travel day whatnot from a general perspective i say if it's the first game of the series then i'd like to focus on more movement training what that means we may come in and guy comes in hey let's go through some hurdle routines a little bit of skipping let's do some like light accelerations we need to throw some med ball work or some sway work to get make sure that our groins are loosened up you know if we flew in the night before i need to kind of unlock his body so to speak um wake up his nervous system um he may not have slept very well so you're trying to read that um so you have kind of this general idea that you've through your experience of what the, what you think the athlete needs. And then you're kind of sitting down and you have this, this plan. So day one of the series, more movement. How are you thinking about this? You know, do you have any aches and pains anywhere that we need to specifically address? Mm-hmm. So you're kind of going from a general warm up, so to speak, like, Hey, let's get some tissue work in five minutes, a little bit of, you know, you might hop on a bike or get in the aerobic system, uh, working, go through Like I said, hurdles, uh, series is usually about you know eight to ten minutes of hurdles, and then we're going to go into some movement series, and it may be a multi-directional movement. It might be you know if we're home and we have turf, and it might be some loaded acceleration work. It might be some sled pushes, um, but more with a speed or strength emphasis there mm-hmm. uh, for acceleration. Or we might get out on the field and do some things if we're traveling. And then the second day of a series, uh, we will do more of a, a lift, so to speak. And then how do you define a lift is kind of d- defined on where that person is. So we'll look at, you know, how many accelerations, uh, they did the night prior. Um, you know, have, has this guy gotten over 85% quite a bit? Um, well then I just got to make sure I check in and I might go a little less on the posterior chain because I know that he had a little bit like people forget that when you're sprinting, there's a high load on the hamstrings Mm -hmm. and that becomes part of the training adaptation that you want. 
So if his hamstrings got trained through sprinting hard the day prior, I need to just kind of check in and I might do a little less posterior chain volume on that. Okay. Um, because I know he's got to go sprint again, possibly that night. Um, and then you're kind of, uh, from a strength perspective, you're saying, okay, well, what, what is the strength stimulus we're trying to give to him that day? And is it, you know, more of a power emphasis? Is it more of a general total body emphasis? Um, and breaking down the different movement patterns, you know, we're going to deadlift a little bit, are we going to more squat? We're going to go single leg because the total system load at this point in time in the year, we're probably not going to load up the barbell too heavy anymore. And we might get into more single leg work or heavy contralateral work where you got, you know, a 90 pound kettlebell and you're doing a back foot elevated split squat. Well, the offset of that load is going to make me feel pretty heavy, but it, the total system load is very low. Mm -hmm. um, so I can recover quickly before that game that night. And then usually on the third day of a series is a, a day game. So it's kind of, uh, Hey, how do you feel from the day prior lifting wise from the two days of playing? What do we need to do to get you ready to go mm -hmm. uh, for today? So and what are the, uh, how do you track recovery? Is it what, what types of, uh, how do you quantify or how do you, um, track recovery just uh, outside of conversations and you know this guy played a ton and tracking uh innings or pit pitches what, what what do you use to track coach um i i'm not tracking recovery right now quite honestly um what i used to use in college is what we would do uh, an rp subjective rp at the end of the day um so i kind of had an idea of how hard they thought practice was and then the wellness questionnaire in the morning would give us uh, resting heart rate. So I knew if their resting heart rate would start to elevate a little bit, then that am I kind of looking at a sympathetic versus parasympathetic and how do I start to guide their recovery choices a little bit better? Mm -hmm. um, you're looking at mood was always one that I wanted to see because it's the perception of how I recovered is going to influence my my day and how I like my, my motivation levels for the day. Mm -hmm. um, so you're from to kind of answer your question. I'm not necessarily tracking it per se, like, Hey guys, let's come in and fill something out. It's more of, if I feel tired and sluggish, well, do I need more? Like, how do you respond well to um, more of a cold tub or a stimulatory effect of right. kind of waking up the system for more of a contrast perspective okay um versus hey i just can't I, I feel like i just can't sleep um like i'm kind of wired well maybe you're putting them into a heat situation and they're doing some more sauna work mm -hmm. um to kind of bring them down and maybe that's post game um hey after the game today i want you to just go in we're going to do some diaphragmatic breathing some stretching um i want you to spend about 10 to 15 minutes in the sauna and kind of slowly bring them down into some more of a parasympathetic state before mm -hmm. you send them off. Um, so from tracking recovery, you tr again, it's not 100% dialed in. I think that there's some other things that we could do, um, whether you're looking at what system are you looking to have recover as well, because systems recover at different times. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're looking at, kind of Charlie Francis's high low model that was a kind of a you know CNS fatigue is every 48 hours we should be able to have some type of stimulus to that okay um, so it, it kind of again it's kind of coming back to what are you trying to recover from and then how does that person perceive the rec form of recovery so we might have guys get in you know hey take a nap you know when you get in today we have a recovery room um, get in an anti-gravity chair, put on recovery pumps, um, you know, just kind of tune out. And we know that that's going to get their legs back underneath them. You know, how do we kind of put them in different situations for where they're at? If you, if you're, let's say you were using like the Charlie Francis high low model and you know, that's, you know, for the most part, you're, I could see a model like that you know, you're going to fatigue a great deal and you're using a lot of lower body. If it's not tempo conditioning, it could be speed and agility. Would you just break that up and, you know, obviously a case by case basis, but you just might say, Hey, today's an off day. We're not doing anything. Or we're just doing recovery modalities and that's it. 
Is that ever a, a solution? Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. You know, you're looking at the the schedule and where you are in the long haul, and there's guys that come in. I might say, hey, you know what? Uh, let's give me. Let's just, if anything, just move a little bit today because I think sometimes people think that forget that movement is recovery. We were designed to move. Um, and sometimes I feel like like one of the things that I see is guys coming in off of an off day are generally just feel off. And part of the they haven't had the stimulation of movement because movement always, it becomes the norm to maintain homeostasis. And when I don't get that, do I fall back into more of a parasympathetic state? Mm-hmm. Like when my body starts to crave recovery. Right. It's not just do nothing. Right. Yeah. So I think like you have to start to look at, um, it's some guys like, yes, some days just passive recovery. Like you're just beat up. And I think that comes back to the psychological aspect of sometimes it's like, I just don't want to do anything. Just lay on the couch. Perfect. Because if I try to force you to do anything, it's going to look as a chore and it's not going to serve its purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, so the re- mental recovery is just as important as the physical recovery that you're trying to accomplish. Okay. Okay. That was great. That was great. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I hate to bounce around. I do have a question regarding Major League Baseball athletes. Um, let, let's face it, a lot of guys are there because they're incredibly talented and they have a huge upside. I'm sure you get guys uh, onto your roster and then they have to do some uh, performance training with yourself and they're not necessarily all into performance training. How do you bring that guy around to understand? Not only you're explaining, he he obviously, or maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but you've already explained the benefits of longevity, health, making sure that he gets a lot of, he's not going to miss a lot of games. He um, He's going to, be healthy for a high percentage of games. How do you bring that guy around to, to give a little bit more in regards to effort and be all in? Yeah, I think that's the hardest part. Um, those are the, 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 the guys, you know, that they're just so talented. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you do have on your side is father time and he kind of has the, the noose on everybody. Oh yeah. And so as you develop with that athlete, you know, are you going out and maybe just seeing him in the off season? Because a lot of times those guys will train pretty hard during the off season and they kind of build up this big bank and reserves. And then they're just kind of making some withdrawals over the course of the season. Mm-hmm. And all they're trying to do is get more deposits, right. To kind of offset the amount of withdrawals they're taking. And so I think it comes to not, pushing them too hard mm. meaning not always being like a nag you know like hey you coming in today hey you coming in today you can't go about it that way right it's more or less waiting for them to kind of slowly come around okay and part of that also is who are their influences uh that are on the team that are friends with that person and do they train well mm. and do you kind of go about it as like hey you know what i haven't seen so and so today um, or in a little while, you know, why don't you get on for me and see if you can get them to come in with you tomorrow when you come in and we'll see if we can, we'll do a short session okay. and see if we can get them on board. So how do you kind of, uh, surround the teammates and, and not always, uh, make it about yourself. Right. Uh, and trying to get him in and trying to do all the work yourself, you know, Got it. um, how do you give other teammates the opportunity to serve as a leader, you know? And sometimes those guys that are so talented, maybe the first time that they start to come around is when they get an injury. And maybe that's the first eye-opening experience because they never had one. And now they realize, wow, it kind of allows them to be reflective of where they need to be and how their change, how their career has changed. Okay. You know, it's not the, it's not the strongest, it's the most adaptable, right? So how do we start to get them to adapt if their body is changing? And you see the best athletes are always kind of students of the game. Like you look at Bruce Lee, for example, he was always trying to adapt and evolve his system in order to get better. And it's not always through skill recognition. It's like physical skills are starting to age. How do I start to change that up? I mean, Tom Brady is another good example of that um, as a guy who started to take um, – not a physical specimen by any means, but he I think, takes great care of I, himself. I, I think he is. 
that's me being from Massachusetts. He's always going to be a specimen to everyone in Massachusetts. So a hundred percent, obviously growing <laughs> up in Boston, but like you look at his, I would say like aesthetically you look at him and when he got, came out of Michigan, but then you watch, you know, Tom versus time and, and all those things. And you oh, realize man. like this, this was an evolutionary process that started over there, his 20 year career. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I couldn't agree and, more. Hats off to his trainer in the sense of being able to build that relationship and trust with him that they both are working simultaneously together for for the greater good. Right. And this is a great topic in itself. It's Alice Guerrero, correct? Is that the name? Yeah, I believe so. Um, I want people to know that when you're a coach and you're working with someone, I, I, I haven't, I've never, actually Tom Brady was a teammate of mine one year in New England, but Tom Brady, when he first showed up, Tom Brady now, as uh, Coach Brad just said, he's a different person. That training's evolved. What it looked like when he was a rookie in second and third year, it's not the same as it is now. He's a 40-year-old man. Training must change. If you're closed off to that, you're probably in the wrong field. You have to understand that he wasn't just working with bands or whatever the protocols and systems are now back then. He was doing a multitude of things that helped put him in a position to have great longevity and be Tom Brady, the Tom Brady he is today. But things have evolved. What are your thoughts on that? Coach? Yeah, I think, I think um, you're a hundred percent right. And our training and our knowledge of the training, we have to honor the past. A lot of stuff. When you look at training from a sports performance, the Russians were doing all this stuff back in the fifties and sixties and even earlier before then. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, basic physiology and having an understanding of the basics of principles allows you to then change and adapt with an underlying principle over the athlete that you're working with. Right. And if you're still the same coach that you're still prescribing the same kind of template and you're not evolving as a coach and going to continuing education courses and you're not um, speaking to, you know, seeking people out who are better than you, then you're you're not going to evolve and you're going to stagnate and everything else is going to you know kind of falter from that mm-hmm. and so i agree with you like i hopefully you know you kind of look back and reflect on maybe the programs you wrote five years ago or 10 years ago and you're a different person you should be absolutely you know and yeah, therefore absolutely. you should be able to adapt your your philosophy with principles in mind that are based upon you know fundamentals of strength development, conditioning and energy system development, um, and fundamentals of kinesiology and physiology and understanding all those things, but then continuing to adapt how they fit the culture of the sport, how they fit the profile of the athlete and all that stuff. It's kind of like you expect your athletes to get better. And you're, if you're a, a personal trainer, they're expecting you to make them better. But if you're not leading from the front, then how is that expected to go? You know, it's 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 not going to work very long. It's not a sustainable model. Absolutely, um, well said, uh, Coach. When you're, how has your programming? Like, can you think to one thing that you've significantly changed in your programming? As we said, if I look back on my programs, they were like just basic, either hypertrophy or strength programs. Now I'm doing more combination things that might be strength, there's more mobility, whatever it may be. How has your training, or could you speak to one thing that has changed a great deal from your previous programming to uh, today? Yeah, I'd say, um, so I think it was probably around 2010. um, I got a heart rate monitoring system. And And I remember it was like a big deal at University of Portland. And I was like, okay. I just asked for this thing. It's $10,000. We're trying to quantify training. How does this all work? What does this all mean? You know? Um, and what I started to figure out and with the help of some great professionals, uh, Patrick Ward was really instrumental in this um, and being an influence on me as well as uh, Joel Jameson's work. And I started looking at is everything is essentially the expression of biological power. And so I'd have a theme that would relate to kind of an energy system for that day, then how do we repeat and express that energy system? So for example, if we're going to do a lactic power, for example, we may start off the session with um, the principles of a lactic power. Everything is going to last say between 
you know, set's going to last between seven to 10 seconds. We're going to have 90 seconds to three minutes rest. Um, every, this, the, if you looked at the adaptation that you're seeking and the expression of biological power for that day will be a lactic power. Now, we may start off the session with a little bit of a dynamic movement prep, and then we're going to get into some hill sprints, and we're going to say, athletes, you're going to go into you know, every 90 seconds, or we're going to go resting off of your heart rate. When you get down to 120, you're going to go again, and we're going to set a 20-minute block for that. So, And then if we were going to quantify it, I want every – see if you can repeat that 95% or better you know, kind of looking at what percentage drop off are you no longer um, repeating or expressing that power, then that part of the session's over, then we're going to go into the weight room and we're going to do um, power cleans or an Olympic type movement. And maybe we're going to do um, say six sets of two and the set's going to last, you know, five seconds long and we're going to have 90 seconds rest. So that the overall theme funneled so that it was kind of, off the platform, so to speak, and then into the weight room, and then everything kind of followed that energy system model for that day was my overall theme. And then where did that theme fit into the block of what we were trying to accomplish? Um, and so that kind of really started to morph around like probably 2010, 2011. And I would say that was kind of now how I start to look at program design again. Now is kind of where are we at the expression of biological power um, is kind of how I look at things versus before it was very much, um, okay, we're going to do this strength component and maybe we're following a West side template, but then we're going to, the, the, everything wasn't complementary, so to speak. And I didn't have a good understanding of that. I appreciate uh, the answer and the honesty. Thank you, coach. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know that you're short on time, Coach, and you've been amazing. Uh, I have a few questions here. You can just – this is kind of like a, a almost speed round, if you will. So it's like one okay. word answer to a sentence since we can give them as much information, the listeners as much information as possible. The first question is people uh, – a person – a favorite – let's say a favorite movement or exercise, one you absolutely love. Sprinting. Sprinting. Nice. To, uh, straight ahead or uh, uphill? Excuse me, uphill or? Uh, uh, preferably uphill. Uphill, okay. Uh, degree of incline? Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, okay. As long as it, yeah, as long as it puts me in a position to be successful. Okay. You know? Okay. Awesome. And it, sometimes it can't exactly always find the best hill. Exactly, you know? exactly. Uh, are you a fan of downhill running while we're on the topic? Overspeed training? I haven't done enough of it to say that I was, that I'm a fan of it. I'm, I don't know. Um, you know, some people are doing some great stuff with the 1080 sprint mm -hmm. and doing some overspeed work and they can quantify it a little bit better. Right. Um, I haven't done it with my athletes per se. Part of it is I couldn't find a, a grade that I felt comfortable with, nor a um, need for overspeed work with a basketball player. Okay. Um, the sports that I trained didn't necessarily always call for it. Right. Perfect. Um who is your favorite performance coach to follow? Oh gosh. So when you There's so many. Yeah, there are so many. You can give me a couple if you want, two or three. Um, I'd say Patrick Ward has had a big impact on me. Okay. Um I I like what Joel Jameson does. Mm -hmm. Um, from kind of looking at those things. Um, I just I'd stick with those two. Okay. There's too many to name, quite honestly. Yeah. There's a big list. And we're talking about actual coaches, not the most marketed coaches. So, Yeah. Um, okay. So if you were hiring a, um, a coach uh, or you're adding a coach to your team, what would you say the most important attribute this uh, young coach should have or possess? A, a willingness to read and be open-minded. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, a willingness to be like, just show up and, and do the work and not be asked to do the work and kind of slowly build off of that. Um, you know, you're looking at the kind of what are their values and mm -hmm. what are their characteristics that are going to make them successful over the long haul. Okay. So how do you kind of slowly identify those things? 
Okay. But I would say, like, for me, like, do they read and do they train are right. the two big things. And they have to train themselves, obviously, right, to stay in yeah. to the craft. Yeah, I always say, like, if you can't do an N of one yourself, how are you going to do it with anybody else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Awesome. Okay. Uh, a continuing education course that you love or that you had a great experience Ooh. with? Uh, I'd say, honestly, right now, um, the Strong First Kettlebell, okay. part of it is because I'm in the process of training for level two. Um, What's the test? But I think uh, the test for level one is you have to, to snatch a 24 kilo bell uh, 100 times in five minutes. And then you have to show a demonstration of uh, being able to do a double clean, a front squat, a press, a Turkish get up. Um, and I'm probably missing one other there, a, a regular snatch. Um, what I liked about it is there are a lot of universal principles that Pavel teaches that you see kind of in other courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also this, you have to train for the seminar. So you, a lot of people have already been humbled coming into it. So the camaraderie going into the seminar itself just seems to be a little bit higher than most. Okay. Got it. Strong first. Okay. So uh, you deal with a lot of teams. Team, uh, teams a big uh, subject head, uh, what we discussed when we met and today. So, Coach, what is the most important attribute a teammate can possess, in your opinion? A teammate mm-hmm. can possess. Hmm. They got to have they – have they have a lot of things. They got to have this. They must. Yeah. Um I would just say work ethic, Mm -hmm. you know, like, or I would say this authenticity would be a big thing. You know, um, when we look at like, I always think of like authenticity in leadership and are you developing? I think sometimes when you look at, uh, head coaches, they pick the best athlete to be the leader, uh, because they score the most points, but that's not always, they're not always the best character of people. And if you're going to develop, uh, pick leaders between uh, for a team, mm-hmm. are you picking them in ways that they are authentic? Like, do you have the bulldog guy who's going to get in your face? And some people respond to that. Do you have the other leader who is authentic and maybe is the guy that puts his arm around you and has a quiet talk uh, with you? And maybe other people respond to that. So how do you develop and pick captains of your team that are leaders that are still authentic to who they are as people. Awesome. Awesome. Awesome advice. Coach, uh, can you speak to a, uh, what was a quick learning lesson that you received at, um, in over your career? Well, very important learning lesson. That's going to ducktail into the next question. Uh, there's so many. I, know. I would, yeah, I know. I'd say the biggest thing is patience is one thing I'm trying to practice. Um, For example, I had been at University of Portland for 10 years and the standards and the expectations were set and I had a good, you know, you had had gone through a series of, um, you had some seniors, the coaches, everything, like everything was detailed, like everything was coached. There was no missed reps, meaning if we were doing a warm up, everything was, there was no wasted reps. We're going to, say do a walking quad stretch down and then we're going to do a two point stance back to work on acceleration mechanics. And then I tried to morph that into what I was doing here. And I, I'm not at the university of Portland anymore. I can't expect them to what took me 10 years to build to come in and just change here. Mm -hmm. You're hired for change, but people are fearful of change. So having the patience to look at, how do I ultimately win the war and pick and choose my battles appropriately to do so over the long haul? Ooh, that's terrific. Thank you. Um, last question. The best advice you could give a young performance coach getting into the field? Uh, train yourself first mm-hmm. and foremost. Don't, if you can afford to, get trained by somebody else. You're going to have to work for free. Get over it. 
Um, and sometimes the best education isn't a formal class. It didn't cost me anything to go see you mm-hmm. when I met with you on Saturday. It's just kind of like building your network and, and, and being a, a fly on the wall and being observant of who is really good mm-hmm. uh, in the field. Um, so I'd say that like, it's not always about what courses you take. It's kind of, how are you leading yourself? I always said, uh, one of the things is buy a book with every paycheck. When I was a grad student, I can afford 10 bucks to buy a book with every paycheck. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that for the last 20 years of my career. Awesome. And so awesome. every day, if, if it's going to like invest in yourself every day so that people get the best version of yourself that you put forward when they meet you and they're working with you. That's great advice, really. Um, you know, we always, I, I say to this team all the time, I say, you can take as many courses as you want. And man, I think that's incredible. But that self-development and spending time in relationships, uh, connecting and just hearing things. And I'm a, something that's been really uh, prevalent in my career is I go to a seminar and I pay $1,000, $500, $2,000. And I hear one sentence that drastically changed my world. And I was like, wow. I've been here for three days. That's the most important thing I heard, and it was absolutely worth a thousand dollars. It helped me that much. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know. Well, Coach Man, I could talk to you for ten hours, but yeah, you know, been <laughs> so uh, kind to give me your time. Uh, we went a little over. I promised you one hour. It was uh, about an hour and eight minutes. So thank you very much. It was incredible, and um, I wish you nothing but the best of luck for the rest of the season. Thank you so much, uh, Coach Scott. Thank you very much. Appreciate uh, you having me on, and uh, I look forward to continue to learning from you and uh, oh, seeing where you go. Likewise, absolutely. Good Alrighty. luck with the rest of the season. Have a great day, Coach. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Appreciate you. it. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.